0: Well, you want to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah. We're well, we in Jeremiah chapter 3 today, so you want to open your Bible in the middle and go right. And you go just past Isaiah, and you should find it. If you get to all those little uh, prophets, uh, smaller books, then you've probably gone a little too far and you need to go back. Uh, <clears throat> we're in... Jeremiah 3, we're not doing the whole chapter today. We're doing verses 1 through 18. We're going to go sort of slow through the fall, and then the spring it's going to speed up and we'll do much bigger chunks of uh, the book. So we're not here for the next seven years. Um, We're still going to be here for a year, so uh, be patient. Um, As you know, Jeremiah is a little bit different book. strikes us a little bit differently, there's much to learn from it, and Jeremiah 3 is no exception, so, and uh, I'll probably be talking a little slower, a little lower today, I'm still battling this lingering cough that I can't seem to get rid of, so appreciate your prayers. Jeremiah 3, verses 1 through 18, as always, let's listen carefully, as this is God's word. If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me, my father? You are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. A word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and it's a hard word. It's a hard word to hear, and yet we need it, and we need to hear it. We need to know that everything we need for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that builds our faith and gives us hope. Because it's built on the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah and through him to us. Help us hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us return to you and to come home. In his name we pray, amen. 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 So what do you do with a passage that's as hard as this one? there are many more like it to come in Jeremiah. Well, I started thinking about what were they doing wrong? And I think there's, I was struck, uh, recently was reading from a novel called 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I believe he won a number of Nobel Prize for Literature and things like that, amazing writer. And he describes in his magical, yet very realistic way, a village that's suffering from an insomnia plague. And as this insomnia plague um, goes through the village and the people are unable to sleep, it gradually, it makes them so tired, it causes a loss of memory. And that spreads across the village And the insomnia turns into this previously unheard case of contagious dementia. The entire village is losing its memory. And in order to try and salvage his memory, he focuses in on a man named Jose. And Jose develops an elaborate plan that involves labeling everything. And he gets an ink and a brush and so he marks everything with the name of that thing. So he goes through his house table, chair, clock, door, wall, bed, pan and he labels everything. And then he goes out to his uh, corral and barn and he marks all the plants and the animals you know, cow, goat, pig, hen, mango, banana and he just puts these inks, these names on all of the things. But his memory continues to fade. And so Jose decides he needs to be even more obvious. So he posts a sign on the cow. And the sign read, this is the cow. She must be milked every morning so she will produce milk. And the milk must be boiled in order to be mixed with coffee to make coffee and milk. And thus Jose and the rest of the villages living in a reality that's slipping away but it's being momentarily captured by words. But even those words eventually escape, and they forgot the meanings of the written letters. And eventually, not knowing what else to do and not being able to think and not being able to remember, all because they can't sleep, they finally just put a a placard at the entrance of the town that says, God exists, because that knowledge, too, is slipping away. It's an incredibly sad story, but it is not entirely untrue. See, there's plenty of times in Old Testament history that God's people simply forgot God. After all they've been through, the exodus and the... Now they have the exile of the northern kingdom of Israel. And you have to wonder, how can this happen? But it happens. And so we read in the time of Moses from Deuteronomy 32, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You are unmindful of the rock that bore you And you forgot the God who gave you birth. Then we went from the time of Moses to the time of the judges and the history of Israel. And so it happens again. We read in Judges 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherot. Continues to happen in the time of the Prophets. We read in Isaiah 17, for you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. All throughout their history, from every sort of season or era of Old Testament history, there's a time, there's probably 20 more of those verses that says, you've forgotten God. It happens over and over and over again. And the saddest part of this plague of forgetting God is they act as if somehow God is uh, unaware of what's going on. You know, God can't possibly know that we're not paying any attention to him. Of course, I think there's a modern parallel to this, isn't it? You know, we, we live in a time of forgetting God. We live in a time that acts as if God doesn't exist. And even those who are willing to concede that God does exist act as if God doesn't matter, or even worse, that God doesn't care. There are even people who claim that God doesn't know, that he's totally surprised by whatever's going on, or so they say. And our culture is quick to make the claims of those who have forgotten God. God doesn't exist. God doesn't matter. God doesn't care. God doesn't know. But that goes against the clear teaching of the Scriptures, The psalmist reminds them and us and anyone who will listen that those are false claims about God. That could never be the case. Psalm 44, among many verses, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of our hearts. And so part of the problem in Judah, the southern kingdom, Judah's headlong rush, that's who Jeremiah is preaching to, the southern kingdom of Judah, and their headlong rush into spiritual adultery is this nagging thought in the back of their head, what if God really does know what's going on? That could work out poorly for us. And so we're at a point early on in a very long story where it's time for God's people to realize just how far away from home They really are. I was reminded of uh, this woman who recently read an article that she set her GPS to go visit her sister, Uh, but there was a similar-named town. um, And she was uh, in um, Belgium, and there was a similar-named town in Croatia. And she drove all the way to Croatia I mean, you're crossing like four international borders and she drove 700 miles. It was supposed to be like a two-hour drive. She drove 700 miles and finally stopped and was like, maybe I should turn around. And I was like, what gave you that clue? You know, maybe the fact that you've passed through four other countries. You can't make this stuff up. This really happens, you know. There's, I will follow the GPS, no matter where it goes. Um, And sometimes you have to think that's not really where I want to go. That's sort of what's happened here. They've just kept going, and they don't realize they're 700 miles away from home. They they just don't realize how far away they've gotten. They've broken their marriage vows. They've been spiritually promiscuous. They're looking for love in all the wrong places. Jeremiah 2 showed us that when God's people cheat on him, it's like leaving this fresh mountain spring to drink from a broken cistern that holds no water. And when you get thirsty enough and when you get tired of living the life of the prodigal son, when you get tired of eating the pig's food, then there's this still small voice reminding you Of the need to return. Of the need to return. Verses 1 through 10. Needs first blank there. I'm going to read the first five verses again. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Will not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers and you would return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you've sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me, my father? You are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. So here at the beginning of chapter 3, the Lord is thinking about divorcing his unfaithful wife. And in words reminiscent of the prophecy of Hosea, who married a, a prostitute, he asks, verse 1, the man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife. Will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers and you would return to me, declares the Lord. Now think about that for a moment. If a man divorces his wife and she goes off and marries someone else, can that man then move back in with her? She's now married to someone else. Obviously, the answer is no. Even if she divorces the second man, she can't go back to the first man. The scripture plainly teaches that in Deuteronomy 24. That's against the Old Testament law. And I'm leaning a lot on Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, to help explain the harder points of Jeremiah. He explains why this is important. He says, this law, which forbade a divorced couple to reunite, was aimed against what would amount to virtually lending one's life to another. If a husband could dismiss his wife and have her back when the next man was finished with her, it would degrade not only her, but marriage itself and the society that accepted such a practice. Ultimately, this is a law designed to protect women. The Old Testament is often dismissed as patriarchal, but the Bible protects the dignity of women. God has always forbidden his, women, forbidden his people to treat women like slaves. And the fact that so many women are still treated that way today should bring great shame to our culture. God also forbids them to play fast and loose with their marriage vows. When people do that, as they do so often in postmodern society, it says the whole land is defiled. It would defile the whole land uh, to move in with your former wife and her new spouse. Then how can God move back in with his people? That would seem to violate his own law. What God's spouse done is so much worse. She has lived as a prostitute with many lovers. The children of Israel have been sleeping with every God they can get their hands on. They have become equal opportunity worshipers. And they don't just have one or two idols, they got a closet full of them. Verse 2, lift up to to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you've sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You've polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Well, there's a strange phrase in here. Quite frankly, sounds somewhat racist, but I don't think it's intended that way. And the commentators disagree, actually spent more time on this one verse than probably the whole rest of this. They disagree over how best to understand this verse, but I think this interpretation makes the most sense. So one of the great traditions of the Arab people and the Bedouin tribes in particular is called the law of hospitality. So if you're lost in the wilderness, and you come across a Bedouin tribe, and you're coming peacefully, you're not attacking them, they have to take you in, feed you, care for you, even if you're considered one of their enemies. As long as you come peacefully, they have to take you in and care for you, even if you're one of their historic opponents. And it's called the law of hospitality. And I think God is comparing Arab hospitality in receiving strangers to Judah's hospitality in receiving strangers, in this case, false gods. They're letting everybody and anybody come in. And to paraphrase, he's saying, just like Arabs care for strangers, you care for lovers, false gods with whom you commit spiritual adultery. And this verse also alludes to the worship of Baal and Asherah, which includes sex with temple prostitutes at hilltop shrines. That's why it's always talking about high places. And then you have this especially powerful word that says ravished. Where have you not been ravished? It is an obscene word for sexual violence. And although God's people are saying they're out looking for a good time, they are getting raped. False gods are always abusive think about that they are choosing to go to false gods who are going to use and abuse them and jeremiah is reminding them of that you're not going to false gods who love you and care for you you're going to false gods who are going to use and abuse you and to make matters worse they have no shame it says yet you have the forehead of a whore you refuse to be ashamed I look that up, and some versions translate that. You refuse to blush with shame. There is a defiance in their adultery. Now, I don't mention that because I think prostitutes are the worst of sinners or beyond forgiveness, not at all. Every person, even the worst sinners, are made in the image of God and can receive forgiveness for sin in Jesus Christ. No one, no matter how much baggage you own, is beyond the love of Christ and the saving power of the Holy Spirit. But I mention these things because they give us a picture of the shamefulness of sin among God's people, both then and now. And Jeremiah is a prophecy for people who know God in a personal way, and yet they've wandered away from him. It is a warning about apostasy, the sin of having a home with God and then running away. And running away is especially reprehensible in Judah's case because God gave her ample warning that she'd be punished for her sins. God's already made clear in his word that spiritual adultery leads to drought and hunger. That law is in Deuteronomy 11. Take care lest your hearts be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land the Lord is giving you. Well, that's coming true. The spring rains have been shut up in the heavens, which is the proper punishment for idolatry. It says that in verse three, the showers have been withheld. The spring rain has not come. He's saying there's a reason for that. It's your adultery, it's your idolatry. And if that's not enough, he goes on to remind them about Israel, her sister to the north, starting in verse 6, and I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, so we're in the time of the last good king, have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. They've been sent into exile, they're gone. And God is calling that a divorce. I sent her away. Not just they were captured, but they, and not just that God allowed it to happen, but God did it. He sent her away. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Those are the false gods we mentioned last week. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. But in pretense, declares the Lord. So, after the people of God are divided into two kingdoms, North and South, Israel and Judah, they're still sisters. And God gave Judah the opportunity to learn from her sister's mistakes. And in 722 BC, the 10 northern tribes of Israel are carried off by the Assyrians because they'd been unfaithful to God. And God refers to this event as a divorce, verse 8. I sent her away with a decree of divorce. You have to think about that. We follow a God who's been divorced. That should somehow affect how we think about that word and what happens to people, how much God understands that, how much he understands how much that hurts. He had hoped Israel would grow tired of her spiritual adultery. She never did. And now God is pleading with Judah to learn from her sister's mistakes. But does she listen? No, apparently apostasy runs in the family. God saw that Judah, just like Israel, continued shamelessly to commit spiritual adultery. Some people never learn. Now, has the contemporary church learned the lessons of church history? Not very well, no. Evangelicals are prone to chastise the government, Hollywood, the media, drugs, What do you pick your national problem and say that's everything that's wrong. But Jeremiah indicts the church first of all. He goes after God's people first of all. When he starts to talk about what's wrong with society, he hands God's people a mirror and invites them to take a good long look. The church is supposed to be married to Jesus, but we have many mistresses. If we kept a little black book with the names of our lovers, it would read something like this. For a good time, call material prosperity, idle entertainment, political power, sexual license, self-indulgence. The late Dr. Francis Schaeffer said that Christians in America suffer greatly from the idol of personal peace and affluence. So how do we Return. Well, the way home begins with the call to return. The call to return, starting in verse 11. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel, Israel's terrible. They're gone. There were incredible evil things happened in Israel. God says, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north. That's where Israel was. And say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, For I am your master, I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. The way home begins with a divine call. You're sitting out in the desert by the side of the road waiting for sin to come along. You have no idea how to get back to God, and even if you did know how, you don't want to go. And so the way home starts with God's call, verse 12. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, return Verse 14, return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. As he loves to do, Jeremiah is using another play on words in these verses. Different forms of the word for turn or return occur 18 times in this chapter. And what the prophet is saying uh, is return, turnable children, or perhaps come back, backsliders. God is calling his children home. Now, why does God keep doing this? It seems he has lots of good reasons not to do this. But he does it for no other reason than he is a God of love. It's the mysterious grace of God. He's gracious to the ungracious, faithful to the unfaithful, and loving to the unloving. His call comes first. God issues the invitation to come home before anything else happens, before we've made the slightest motion back to him. It's the priority of the divine call in salvation. And through the words of Jeremiah, God's calling us home. He's saying, come home, child. Please come home. Your loving father wants you home. He makes the same call through Christ. Jesus said, Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we have first, we have God's divine call. He's calling them home. Second thing we see here uh, on the way back home is God's election. We can never forget we've been chosen by God. Look again at verse 14. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. Some versions translate that, for I am your husband, which fits the context much better. It's a divine call, the free invitation of God to come to him for salvation. It's the free offer of the gospel that is offered to all men, women, and children in Christ Jesus. But notice what the Lord goes on to say at the end of verse 14. I will take you, one, from a city and two, from a family and I will bring you to Zion. I'll choose one from a city and two from a family. That's election. God's choice. God's choosing stands behind God's calling. And the call to salvation is not like a mom calling her kids home for dinner. You know, when I grew up, um, you know, my mom couldn't text me or anything like that. She'd come to the front door and just, she had a really loud voice. My mom's real little. But she had a really, really big voice. And I hear this, David, supper. God help you if mom had to call twice. (laughs) So yeah. But it's not it's not like that. The truth is, if God didn't compel you to come, you never come home. You don't know the way home without his call, and you don't want to come home without his electing grace. You need God's sovereign grace to transform you and bring you home. One by one and two by two, God brings each and every one of his children home. And this call is a call to repent, ultimately, and it has demands and it has consequences. When God calls you to return to him, he's also calling you to turn away from the false gods, to turn away from the other lovers, to turn away from sin. Returning to God means turning your back on all those false idols. It's easy to mistake false repentance for true repentance. There's a lot of false repentance in Jeremiah's day. The people returned to God, but not wholeheartedly. Look back at verse 10 said, Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Judah's repentance is just a charade. And it is possible to fool yourself into thinking you've repented for your sins and you've returned home from God when the truth is you're still out wandering around in the desert. The most dangerous spiritual condition in the world is to think you've already done all the repenting you need to do. Notice how true repentance differs from false repentance. It's wholehearted. The problem with Judah's relationship and her repentance, she didn't return to God with her whole heart. The believer's relationship is a love relationship. Redemption is a romance. True love requires an undivided heart. This is the kind of repentance that God is looking for. He says, only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God, and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice. It says, only acknowledge your guilt. It sounds so simple. But these are the people, if you remember from last week in chapter 2, who habitually deny any wrongdoing at all. God's laying out all these sins, and there's a big long list, and they're like, who me? Guilt? What guilt? I haven't done anything wrong. And the first step on a journey back to God is an act of self knowledge, like the prodigal son. Acknowledge simply means to know. And before the will can be engaged in the process of true repentance, the mind has to face reality without excuse or, as it says here, without pretense. (coughs) Excuse me. Accept the facts. And when you do that, the first step home's already been taken. First and foremost, repentance is telling God how sorry you are that you've sinned against him. But you can't just say it, you actually have to be sorry. Remember what King David said King David committed adultery and murder. Those are awful crimes against people, actual people. And yet he repented before God with these words, Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We don't work up repentance from somewhere inside us. Repentance is a response to the love of God. And to verse 12, I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. The word used here for mercy is hesed. Hesed is the key word of the Old Testament. It's used for covenant faithfulness, steadfast love, loving kindness, unbroken promises, and unbreakable vows. God never went through with the divorce. When you're an unfaithful wife, God is still a faithful husband. He has every right to slam the door on you forever forever but he's your loving, merciful, all-suffering husband. And he keeps welcoming you home. Even when he divorced Israel and sent her in exile, there's a plea, return to me, O faithless Israel. And the problem with God's people in Jeremiah's day is they're just giving lip service to repentance. They're uttering the prayers of repentance, but they didn't change any of their ways. Their conversations are God with casual. They didn't have a proper sense of reverence and awe in his presence. And the warning for us is pretty obvious, I think. Every week we come in here, we have a confession of sin. We take a moment to repent privately, and then we confess our sins corporately. And it's easy to just say the words, just go through the motions, pay little attention, and not really mean it. And Jeremiah is teaching us that's very dangerous, Our confession of sin this morning came from Hosea, an amazing book all about the love of God. And it began in Hosea uh, verses 1 through 3. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. We will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, Our God, to the work of our hands, the idols. In you, the orphan finds mercy. That's true repentance. We've abandoned God for idols and it made us orphans. But when we truly repent before the Lord, the orphan finds mercy. And how does God respond? He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. They will experience the blessings of return. The blessings of return, verses 15 through 18. The blessings of returning to God are given in the form of, of a remarkable vision of the future starting at verse 15. The Lord says, And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem, shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all nations shall gather to it in the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land I gave your fathers for a heritage. This is a stupendous vision. You have to remember how important the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant is to ancient Israel. The ark is a large box in which the Ten Commandments and the manna and the rod of Aaron were placed. And on top of it was a lid called the mercy seat. And it's placed in the most holy place, the very center of the temple. And once a year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the high priest would enter carrying a small bowl full of the blood of a bull and a goat that were sacrificed. The blood's to indicate atonement, the remission of sins, both for his own sins and the sins of the people. And he'd splash some of it on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and God's glory would hover over the Ark as a symbol of God's presence. But now we read in this text that this Ark, right at the very center of temple worship, they shall no more say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered. Or missed shall not be made again. Well, how is this a blessing? The temple and the Ark of the Covenant all symbolize mediation by a priest. The average person like you and me weren't allowed to go into the most holy place. It's all done by mediation. A priest had to do it. The priest represented us. And even then, only once a year. Now there's a vision that's so powerful, so complete, the entire city is called the throne of the Lord. Verse 17, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. You have to think how the language of the temple changes through the story of the Bible. There's a tabernacle. And then there's a temple. And at the same time, Jeremiah is preaching to Judah Ezekiel is preaching to the exiles who are already off in Babylon. And the first wave of exiles has been taken and Ezekiel was taken with him. And Ezekiel's preaching to the exiles in Babylon while Jeremiah is back in Judah. And he's saying, don't you understand? Judah's doomed. Jerusalem's gonna fall. Jerusalem is so wicked, it's gonna fall. And even the people in exile don't wanna hear that. Because that means there's no city to go home to. Even while they're in exile, they found it difficult to believe that the temple could ever fall, could ever be forsaken by God. This is a place God met with his people. This is the place of atonement. How could God let his temple come down? And then in Ezekiel 8 through 10, three chapters, Ezekiel has this spectacular vision. And obviously I'm going to summarize it because it's three chapters. Um, And he's transported 700 miles to Jerusalem. And he sees all this horrible wickedness getting on. And in his vision, the glory of God leaves and abandons the temple and moves to the chariot throne of God. And the chariot abandons the city and crosses the Kidron Valley and rises up to the Mount of Olives and turns around and simply looks over the city. If it reminds you of Jesus on the Mount of Olives looking over the city, it should. It's a way of saying that God is judicially abandoning the entire city. So when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian hordes finally come down and destroy the city, it's not because God isn't strong enough. It's because God's pronounced judgment on it. It's precisely because God has already abandoned the temple and the city because of their sin. If God was still there, they couldn't take it. And so when Ezekiel comes out of this incredible vision and he tells all the elders in exile about his vision, they're horrified because they know this means that Jerusalem is gone, it's lost, it's fallen. And God then says to the exiles through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be with their God and they shall be my people. To remember that phrase comes from Ezekiel 37. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people, then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. In other words, the real temple is where God is, not where the masonry is. Don't confuse the symbol with the reality. He's saying, don't you understand? Even if the temple falls, it's okay. That sanctuary is gone. I will be a sanctuary to you. Eventually, a second temple is built, and eventually it gets knocked down again, and it's not the end of things. Six centuries later, there's a voice on the streets of Jerusalem saying, John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, and therefore... When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The ultimate temple is not masonry. The ultimate meeting place between God and sinful people is not a tabernacle or a temple. It's Jesus himself. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they understood that he died, and he was the sacrifice that paid for our sins once for all and rose again, establishing himself as the great meeting place between God and his own rebellious image bearers. And this image of Christ as the temple plays out in a variety of ways throughout the New Testament until finally you get to the very last vision of the entire Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. And that starts, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's a direct quote from Ezekiel 37. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Back to Jeremiah 3, 17. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it in the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. We return not to a place. But to the presence of the living God. Once you've answered God's call to salvation and repented of your sins, what you want to do more than anything else is return home and worship God. When you come home to God, the only thing you can say is to God alone be all the glory. Look back at the long and winding road that led you home to God. You were sitting in the desert committing spiritual adultery with modern idols. You had no idea how to get back home. But who called you home? God did. Who chose you and brought you back from the wilderness? God did. You did the repenting, but true repentance is a response to God's love. Who loved you? God did. So from beginning to end, your salvation is a work of God. He wants you home. He wants you to come back. He wants you to return He is the temple. He is the sanctuary. He is our dwelling place. He is calling you. And when you return, all you can say, in the words of King David, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess with shame how easily we turn aside from your word, thinking we know it in some superficial way, but we haven't absorbed its lessons deeply into our lives. Forgive us our sins. Open our eyes to the ugliness of our own idolatry Give us this turning, this returning that brings us home to you because you're the God who is our sanctuary and our dwelling place. We've recognized your identification of us in your word as it's been opened before us this morning. We rejoice in the fact you've called us to yourself. We don't fully understand that, but we're grateful that you've called us your own. And so we pray that wherever we found ourselves in this sermon, we would come to that place where we want to return to you. We pray we might give your spirit freedom to work in our lives this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees, as we hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word, an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises, and through these things to bring us home and draw us closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Remain standing to receive God's blessing that great passage at the end of the scriptures. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. You hear the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah 3. God bless you. We'll see you next week.